Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to another writer and film critic, Jason Bailey. He's written a number of books... Uh, books on uh, Pulp Fiction, Woody Allen, Richard Pryor, and his latest book is called Fun City Cinema, New York and the Films That Made It, uh, spanning a century almost of cinema, and telling the story of the films and how they were made and shot in the city, about the city, the various difficulties they had, and also linking it to the history of the city itself. It's a really fascinating read, and it will enrich your... Uh, knowledge and your enjoyment of uh, of some of the best films ever made, from Midnight Cowboy to King Kong, French Connection, A Taxi Driver, and including a few stinkers like Death Wish, which we do deal with. If you like the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, spread the word. You know what to do. If you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Yeah, that was one of the best breakfasts I've ever had. Was the, oh the my breakfast God. in that hotel? It was just like, oh my God. I I'd, I'd get up early and be in there for an hour or two. <laughs> yeah, no, I never had to eat lunch because I would just like time that breakfast late enough in the morning and just uh, completely fill my stomach until about six o'clock. <laughs> I never had to eat lunch on that entire trip. Yeah, that I've, that was an amazing. The idea that you can like eat regular breakfast stuff and then also all of this great, all these like dumplings and all this other stuff. Yeah. That's my absolute, uh, cause I, this was, that was my third time in China and that's my mm. revelation from China was there's no such thing as breakfast. You can just eat yeah. normal food for breakfast. And when yep. you think about it, it's like, why not? Why not just have yes. like an ordinary meal, but just have it as yes. a first meal rather than this yes. bloody because we just eat like children at, at breakfast for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, I, I've finished reading your book and I thought I was really impressed. And I, I've got to say oh, as well, you. I have to say as well that your book has already featured on the podcast before because Mark Harris in the episode, that was his recommended book. 
because I had, I had made sure to listen. I mean, I always try to catch Mark whenever he's on things, and I can tell you more about what a what a tremendous asset it was to know Mark in writing this book. But you know, I would have listened regardless. But the fact that you had sort of flagged it is like you may want to hear what Mark has to say. And I mostly listen to podcasts while I'm walking. So I was walking to the train that morning. I was on my way to a screening in in Manhattan, and nearly brought tears to my eyes just like walking down the street like misty-eyed to hear someone who is such an inspiration to me and whose whose work is was so important to me volunteer such nice things you know what i mean because like he blurbed Mm. the book but that's Mm. you know you can always write off a blurb as like well he's a nice guy and he's doing me a favor but to like volunteer such kind things like that that really really meant a lot to me yeah, no, it was it was it was great to hear. And what he said really stood up when I was reading it. I was thinking about what he said about how this is sort of like a really interesting style of book as well, in mm. the way it incorporates history. And I mean, my experience of New York is I went I visited one time for like about four or five days, must have been about oh 10, 15 years ago. And it was in the middle of the summer and um we got in late. So we basically went straight to the hotel more or less. we had dinner and then went to the hotel and slept. Got up early the next morning, went into you know the classic going the subway and went to Times Square. And as we're coming out of the subway, there's just these drifting clouds of rain going in between the skyscrapers. And I, Mm. you know, it was just that classic reaction of, my God, this is the movie. This is the movie. (laughs) This this isn't a place. It's still a movie, you know. It's a very cinematic place. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a born and bred New Yorker or? I am not. I, I was born and raised and spent my first 30 years in Wichita, Kansas. Right. Uh, which is a very different um, place to be and, a, and a, a way of living. And when I was 30, my wife and I moved to New York and I've lived in New York for the past 15 years. So like those are the only two places I've ever lived are, are Kansas and New York City. Right. And so Kansas very sort of, what would it be, very rural or, or was it a small town? Or? It's, it's, there are rural areas. There are a lot of small towns and I've spent some time in small towns. We lived in Wichita, which was, which is the biggest city in Kansas, but is still, you know, uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, not, not a huge place, not a, not a, not a metropolis by any stretch, but a good sized, you know, diverse community, you know, fairly big, fairly well, but like, here's, here's always, I feel like the best way to sort of describe like we got the independent, we got some of the indie movies like about four months. But I mean, it's like right. it's that that sort of market. So you know, and you know, and and we're about a three hour drive from Kansas City, which was a larger market. So you know, we could take a take a road trip if I wanted to see something sooner. But but always knew that I wanted to be in a bigger place. Uh, always knew I wanted to kind of go to New York or L.A. eventually. And I re I think the the new york movies that i grew up watching were a huge part of uh, of that of of wanting to go there and and ultimately deciding that that was where we needed to be yeah so many big decisions and so many uh ways we think about the world well i don't know about you but personally it's all movies it's all movies <laughs> absolutely yes 100% and you know i in retrospect i'm not you know i i i'm not sure when that all started or if there's sort of a a specific point at which the fascination began but certainly as sort of a a teen preteen you know 12 13 14 when when you're really becoming kind of ravenous about movies so yeah I so I was really drawn to sort of 70s cinema and, and a lot of those being New York movies and like if you're my age I was so when I'm like 12 13 14 that's still very much the video store era and that was how you fed that cinephilia you know that I especially especially during the summer when I wasn't expected to have a job yet, just like going to my neighborhood video store and coming home with an armload of tapes every couple of days. And that was, I think, the moment at which I sort of immersed myself into all of that, into, you know, things like Pelham 123 and and Dog Day Afternoon and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and all the, all the Scorsese stuff. He was huge for me. And I guess really that period was, I, I didn't intend it. I wasn't saying I want to watch a bunch of New York movies, but that the, those for whatever reason, maybe because of contrast, because there was nothing more different from, you know, Wichita, Kansas, circa late 80s than New York in the 70s. But for whatever reason, those tended to be the films that I was kind of drawn to. And when did you start transferring that sort of passion and that cinephilia into, you know, the idea of writing about movies? 
it was a weird path for me, I think. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, from that age or even earlier, I knew, I knew I loved movies and wanted to do something with them. But as, again, this is very much about sort of the moment that all of this is happening. This is, you know, early nineties when the indie film scene is, is exploding. And so initially I, I very much wanted to be a filmmaker. I, sort of was, you know, was reading all about, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, you know, and Alison Anders and all of these, you know, uh, young filmmakers who were, who were Kevin Smith, especially, who were scraping together just like a tiny bit of money and charging things and making these, these tiny, but vibrant, you know, movies. And, and for a long time, that was sort of the path that I had put myself on. I started writing screenplays in high school, uh, feature length screenplays. I made I started making features in college and and then into my 20s. Uh, made a total of like nine or 10 features and handful of shorts. Um, but simultaneously, I had started also writing about film, not not intending that to ultimately be the profession, not intending that to be sort of the, the, the final goal, just because it was something I enjoyed. And so I started writing for kind of alt weeklies in my hometown. There were a series of three uh, sort of underground artsy, because there are, you know, I think any just about any community where you have, you know, more than a couple hundred people, there's going to be an arts community. Mm. There's going to be some kind of a scene. And so I started writing film criticism very casually, very, you know, just kind of off the cuff around that same time in college and continued that through through my 20s while maintaining this sort of goal of of being a filmmaker, of being the next Quentin or what have you. And sort of followed both of those tracks all all through my 20s. But by the time I I hit 30 or so, um, and I had had a couple of, of real opportunities where if if the, the if the film had been up to snuff, uh, it it feels like it should have broken through, and it didn't. Um, and that sort of awkward moment that you have to have as you're, I mean, really when you're, when you're 30, you know, running around with a video camera and, you know, making movies for a few hundred bucks, uh, isn't cute anymore. <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you, it doesn't have the same charm as when you're a college kid. Um, and also it's a matter of, you know, becoming an adult and sort of facing your, uh, your shortcomings and understanding what you're good at and what you're not. And also whether you love something enough to keep doing it, you know, and what I discovered as a filmmaker was that I really liked screenwriting and I really liked working with actors and I really liked uh, editing. But the process of actually being on a film set, I discovered fairly early on was not a, a an atmosphere that was conducive to my temperament. Um, I found it's, it's incredibly stressful uh, and having to sort of work on the fly like that and, and deal with all of, you know, with all the things that can go wrong um, and, uh, and adjusting accordingly is sort of uh, is sort of the opposite of of what I do well like I am a planner and I am a structurer and I am a uh uh you know and I I don't respond well to to sort of last minute adjustments as a person so I just reached this moment where we'd kind of made the last one of these films that 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 we'd sort of poured all of our resources into and it didn't really go anywhere and in the meantime, I'd been doing this film writing and taking it more and more seriously and, and taking more and more pride in it. Um, and when after we moved to New York and it became much harder to make a film for nothing, I started taking that more right. seriously and doing it more. And, um, and then in 2009, I went to my first film festival. It was the first time I'd ever covered a film festival as a critic. And I came home after the first day and I told my wife, I said, I think this is what I should be doing instead. Um, like the, the experience of going and watching films all day and then going home and writing about all of them in the, that sort of like mad rush of, of, of festival coverage. Uh, I was like, I think this is what I should do. Um, and my wife, who is very practical, said, OK, well, here's how we should do that. And we had initially moved to New York because she had gotten into the um, right the graduate program in uh, in journalism at NYU, 
uh, and her mm-hmm. she's she works in in news. She's she's a cable news producer, and so she'd been through that program, but she had. Uh, been aware of this other program in the same school called the Cultural Reporting and Criticism Program. And she said, I think you should do this as opposed to like getting, you know, a master's in film criticism or something like that, because this was more focused on sort of a broad range of critical writing and reporting and sort of all of the things you have to be able to do now to make a living as a film journalist. Mm. And so I looked, I looked into that program and uh, it looked really good. And, you know, a lot of the, 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 the writers that were in the syllabus were people I was already reading and admiring. Uh, and so I, uh, I applied for that program and a couple others, but I got into that one. And that was sort of, that was the switch. That was the, the pivot uh, into that. Um, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, which I hope was okay. No, that's great. It, it's so interesting to hear of everybody's paths because yeah. the one thing I've I've noticed from doing these podcasts is everybody's got a different answer. Everybody's yes. gone in a different, a, a totally different way. Right. No, it's not like being a doctor where there's this very set path. Like you go and you study these things and you go to this graduate school and you get these degrees and then you do this. Like it's everyone's journey to this is so erratic, you know, which I think is... Yeah, I, is, I've... I fully, I fully approve of doctors having quite a structured way yes. of, 100%. <laughs> of approaching it. Hundred percent. It's. I think maybe it's because it's one of these jobs which in which which is so much related to a passion. It's a bit like you know, yeah. It, it's it's hard to justify sometimes to people because it's like, well, you just you like movies and you watch movies and you write about movies. I mean, come on, what's the what's the catch here? Yeah, there's so many people have. I think everybody has a different a different path in, you know, to finally, to finally actually doing it in, in some sort of professional capacity. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's sort of why, why I value my relationships with other critics so much, because we are all coming to these things with such different backgrounds and perspectives and sort of ideas of what we're looking for and, uh, and different levels of appreciation for the work. Like I've, you know, I'm one of my, my best friends in the critical community is Bill Gabiri. And, and Bilga ha, started out as a filmmaker as well. And I think that one of the things, one of the reasons I think that, that, that certainly for myself, I can't speak for him, but one of the reasons I think I am a, uh, a more forgiving critic, um, a more, more inclined to, to grant a filmmaker the benefit of the doubt is because I know exactly how hard this is. I know the sort of magical confluence of events that has to come together in order for a movie to be to be watchable, to to like get completed, much less be great, you know. And so uh, sometimes I, you know, I am a, a bit of a soft touch. Sometimes I'll look at, you know, sometimes my you know ratings of a, of a film compared to you know some of my my critical colleagues and I'm I'm a little bit of a softer touch but it's I I have such uh sympathy for that uh for that process that I I think that really does inform how I view a finished work. I've been thinking about this a lot recently actually about how the 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 idea of you know am I going to be a harsh critic and people are going to respect my right. views because of god nothing seems to please him or or am I going right. to be you know a friend of mine who uh and a fellow journalist said, oh, who's that chap over there? You know, the one who likes everything. <laughs> and, uh, yes. <laughs> I, won't tell you, I won't tell you who that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably wouldn't be surprised if you found out. You'd probably go, oh, yeah, yeah, right. that's a good description. <laughs> but I, I, I've, yeah, I find myself, there's a bit of me that is very, I like being enthusiastic rather than ripping into stuff. But then I get very angry when really sort of moderately good stuff. You know, I don't mind bad stuff. And I don't mind great stuff. But it's when sort of three three star stuff gets boosted. That's the bit that it's sort of like, sure. can't you guys see that this isn't, you know, that it yes. doesn't deserve <laughs> this sort of stuff. But, you know, I, it's a constant debate in my head. I'm not sure. Well, I, I think the, the, the best description I've, I've ever heard of that sort of conflict or just sort of different schools of thought was, a, this was a few years ago, Emily Vanderwerf wrote a thing where she was comparing, she said that, that there are just some, some critics who go in with a five-star review and you have to talk them down. Mm -hmm. And there are some critics who go in with a zero-star review and you have to talk them up. Mm 
Um, mm. It's just a very it's just a, a very basic and an equally respectable way of approaching the job. And the thing that she said that I thought was so insightful was that like this was what made Siskel and Ebert such a good combination mm. because Ebert was a go in with the five star and Siskel was a go in with the zero star. And so if it convinced both of them, then you really knew that you were onto something, you know, which I think is, which I think is true. And, and I, I will make no apologies about it. I am one of the, the former. I am mm. a, you know, you, and, but I, I, I was not always that way. Mm. And when I started, I certainly was a, you know, looking for an opportunity to, to, to rip things up. Cause those are fun to write on a very basic sort of childish level, but as I did the work myself, I sort of, I did very much come to appreciate the work that it takes, which is not to say, number one, that, that I am always a pushover. And there, and I, there are times where I have felt the exact same emotion that you're talking about of like, what are, what are you people all going? This movie was totally fine. Like, because so much of what I see falls into totally fine. Sometimes it really does have to be great to, to, to kick out of that. But I've also found that when I dislike a movie, I hate it with the fury of a thousand sons because I feel almost personally offended that they have wasted this incredible opportunity mm -hmm. uh, and so often wasted it on doing something that is cynical and lazy and lowest common denominator. You know what I mean? Like that, uh, that I, that I, that I, nothing about a film is more infuriating to me than that kind of cynicism. And it's all over major entertainment right now right. Like it's all you you can't miss it these days and so and so to a to a great extent for me personally i have i have in a, uh, to some extent especially over the, the course of the pandemic tuned out on of a lot of the sort of mainstream stuff a lot of the stuff that i you know i don't I, I, I'm, I, I freelance, I am assigned things. I am not, uh, I'm no longer at a staff position where I'm obligated to see every new release and have an opinion on it, but I was for quite some time. And that is a hard uh, inclination to shake. And so even, uh, you know, up until, you know, the last couple of years, I still sort of, even if I wasn't reviewing something, I still felt like, well, I should see this. So I have something to say about it. And I found increasingly uh, less obligation, personal intellectual obligation to do that. Over the course of the pandemic, I just watched a lot of older stuff. I watched, I caught up on some, I filled some blind spots. I watched a lot of sort of older oddities. I just, you know, I, and I found that much more rewarding and much more fulfilling on a personal level to just see things that were interesting to me, as opposed to seeing new things that I was supposed to quote unquote supposed to see yeah yeah, yeah no absolutely no i totally agree i think there's that every now and again i think oh do i really need to watch the fast and furious films i mean should i you right. know i don't know i was looking through one of the streaming services recently and i couldn't find anything that i have either hadn't already seen or i that the piqued my interest until i was sort of tweeting you know do I need to see National Treasure? Would that be something to watch? You know? <laughs> it's just like, but I think if you've survived yeah. so long without it, I think you're probably okay. Not you're fine. You're just fine. Watch it. How? When yeah. did you? Uh, so when when did you come to, come up with the idea of the book? Then well, it was it was oh. Uh, I can give you the long answer if you'd like to hear it, because it is a, a bit of a strange twist. Sure, no, that's journey. That's that's what we're interested in. Like I said, I'd always. <laughs> I'd always had this interest in New York cinema and especially after I moved to New York. And if anything, I would say almost the, the, the book may have begun the day after we moved here because the, 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 the day after we moved, I had a, um, a job interview at CBS broadcast headquarters, which is down on 57th street. Uh, just a little, you know, freelance video editing job, just something to get, mm. to get us going. And so I went to do to that interview while my wife stayed home and unpacked. And then, you know, and I took the subway by myself for the first time. And then I came back and, you know, we decided just to watch a movie to unwind because she, you know, I'd done this and she'd been packing all day. And just sort of randomly, we selected uh, 16 Blocks, which is a Richard Donner movie. Really terrific little, you know, cop thriller, uh, which is set in New York. Is, is that with, that's not with Bruce Willis, is it? Bruce Willis and Most Def and uh, David Morse. About halfway through the movie, there's a scene where they are in a subway station and I like freaked out. I like stood up and I was like, because I had been there that day, like 
you know, three hours before. I was like, that's the subway station. I went through today to go to my interview. And she's like, oh, wow, cool. Like, she wasn't nearly as excited about it as I was. But I was just like, that's, you know, when you grow up in Wichita, Kansas, you don't have the experience of seeing places that you have just been in, like, real movies. And uh, we had a friend, uh, my friend Mike Hull, who I make the podcast with now, who had lived here for, uh, you know, a few years, about five years before us, but a friend from back home in Kansas. And so I mentioned this experience to him the next day. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, the, the thing my uncle told me before I moved here is you will suddenly start to see a lot of places you recognize from movies. And that became sort of a hobby of those first couple of years was seeing New York movies and recognizing things, places that I that I passed in my daily life and not just obvious things like Times Square or whatever, but just like, oh, here's this, you know, this intersection on, you know, over by NYU where I meet my wife after she gets out of school. But this is where, you know, the, the cop car flipped in the climax of Pelham 123. Wow, that's cool. Now there's a Starbucks here, of course. Um, So the idea... Of doing, and so I just knew there was something with that that I wanted to do, and I didn't know what it was. And initially, the idea had manifested itself because I was still hadn't quite talked myself down from the idea of being a filmmaker. Around this time, maybe a couple years after that, the the, the art installation, the clock, was playing in New York. Do you remember the clock? Did you hear about the clock? Was that the one where there's a there's a clip? It takes the time of that's seen in every movie and puts them all together. Yes, it's a 24 hour non you know sort of looping uh, video installation that is com- com- in, uh, comprised entirely of like images of clocks or people saying the time or what time of day it is or whatever whatever for a full 24 hours. It's this incredible project, and you know I went to see some of it. You know nobody I don't know anybody who sat through all 24 at least at a time, but I saw chunks of it. <laughs> when it was playing um, at the Museum of Modern Art around the same time. And so my original idea was that I would do a a documentary film that was sort of in the way that that was both a, a, a video and, a, and an actual working clock, a, f- a film that was both a video and a map of New York City that would be comprised entirely of clips from New York movies and you would kind of work your way through the city over the course of this film and that these these different New York movies would sort of interact with each other and clash with each other and you know uh, Jimmy Cagney would turn a corner and Woody Allen would be there. Like this was sort of the idea. I, I didn't make it very far into that idea. I just sort of started gathering um, movies. I just started gathering clips and and thinking about the way that these these all of these movies over this this history talked to each other. But it around mm, 2014, 2015, I found out about executive order number 10. And when I found out about that, that was somehow the combination of that and also sort of backing away from being a filmmaker and and having written a couple of books by then that became the moment where I realized, no, this is a book that there's, there's a, there's a written story to tell here. And that this, this one piece of paper is the sort of the, the hook for that entire story. And, um, the, uh, uh, that piece of paper is executive order number 10 was signed by John Lindsay in May of 1966. And basically it is, I'll do the shortest possible version of this. Um, it, in that document lay the entire, you know, the past 50 plus years of, of New York city location shooting, because before that, with the exception of, you know, a brief period sort of at the beginning of the movies, but New York location shooting had been incredibly difficult because there was this sort of Byzantine, mm. all of these uh, permits, and you had to get like a different permit for every location and all of these forms. You, had, you know, there was all of this paperwork. Um, labor was much more expensive. Police were uncooperative and you had to like pay them off. Like it was just incredibly hard to shoot a full movie in New York City. There were occasional exceptions and there were small films that pulled it off. But for the most part, the big New York movies of, you know, you know, from, say, 1920 through 1966 were primarily shot, even if they were set in New York, they were shot in California. They were shot on sort of New York street backlots in studios. Occasionally they would come out for like a few days to shoot exteriors and things like that to sort of fake it. But the, the, the difficulty of making a movie in New York prevented many of them from being made here. And John Lindsay, who who was sort of a Hollywood candidate, like he was, you know, this sort of young, dashing, matinee, idle, handsome, Kennedy-esque figure. And yet Republican. And yet Republican. 
was a liberal Republican back in a moment when that existed, when that was a thing. Yeah. Now it's a Starbucks. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so he had, you know, he had campaigned with sort of celebrities and at some point along the line had been made aware of this issue. And it had been talked about occasionally. And, you know, other mayors had made stabs at trying to, to make it work and had never really figured it out. But one of his campaign promises was that he was going to bring movies back to New York. And after he was elected uh, in November of 1965, he sort of commissioned a couple of people to figure out how to make that happen. And their recommendations were basically verbatim in executive order number 10. And what executive order number 10 did was established the mayor's office of film theater and broadcasting, which was a one-stop shop, which was a place right. where filmmakers could go for all the resources they would need. They would fill out one permit. They would get one signature, one red stamp and have the, the, the help they needed to make a movie in a very complicated city. And it established, you know, a division of the police that was specific, you know, for this job. Like they would come be on your set and help you make your movie. And, you know, and provisions for, you know, matching of labor and all this sort of, you know, it, it, it took care of all of the problems that had plagued New York movie making on a grand scale for decades. And so that's fascinating in and of itself. But then the, the other half of this and why this in my head was a, a book, was a story that had to be told, was that, you know, that's right at the beginning of the Lindsay administration. And then during Lindsay's two terms are basically when New York goes into the toilet, are when um, crime increases and uh, social services decline and, you know, white flight takes, uh, decreases the tax revenues. And so the budgets get all out of whack. That's when the city enters its sort of sketchiest phase. And what I found really sort of glorious in its comic timing is the fact that because he had taken this incredible initiative at the beginning of his term, all of those failings were captured for the world to see in all of these New York movies. <laughs> and if, if he hadn't made that effort, then we might not have known what a what a hellhole New York was in the 1970s. You know, were it not for executive order number 10, Midnight Cowboy wouldn't exist as we know it. Taxi Driver wouldn't exist as we know it. The French Connection wouldn't exist as we know it. All of our image, because it was a very clear point of that memo that they would not interfere, that the that the the that city government would have no sensorial influence, that they, you know, that they did not have to approve of your script, but they would help you get it made. And so that comic timing to me was just like, well, there's a story there and I and and maybe there's a book there. And that was sort of how that began. <laughs> it's so funny, but it's also it also kind of means that if New York was Zurich and, you know, the streets were clean and everything was, you know, perfect, then those, what's the point in filming that? You know, uh, right. you know, you, you kind of, you kind of, the, the growth of those New York movies happens about the same time as the, as the sort of the, the petering out and the decline of the Western. So you sort of, it's almost like you're transferring one genre to another. And he, I mean, even the Paul Newman film, you know, Fort Apache, The Bronx, Right. You know, makes that connection absolutely explicit. Right. Exactly. You know, and so that's that that flavor and that flair and that that it's an overused term when you're talking about New York movies, of the 70s. But that grittiness, that sort of griminess mm. is what gives those movies such personality is what, you know, again, drew me to them as like a 12 year old. But it did also create kind of a PR nightmare that it took New York a very long time to to, to overcome. And so that's part of the story, too, you know, and, and how that sort of uh, how they were in the, uh, the 1980s, especially, you know, attempting to sort of to run these very slick uh, tourism campaigns. They decided, you know, that one of the ways out of the fiscal hole was to reposition the city as a as a as a test as a destination for tourists. But they're doing that at the same time as, you know, movies like Ms. 45 and, and The Exterminator are coming out. And so there's that very interesting tension there, uh, which I which I wanted to explore. So I had that idea for the book, but I didn't really know more than that. I And so I just sort of s sat on that for a year or so as I was working on other projects and writing a couple of other books. And But, you know, sort of increasing, you know, seeing more films and reading more things and thinking about it. But then the 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 hooks, the, the way that the film sort of took the or the I'm sorry, the way that the book took the structure that it took on was this whole other 
series of complications because I went to uh, uh, my agent with this idea finally in a, in 2017. Just, you know, this idea of a book about, and initially I envisioned it as being uh, uh, covering 25 years, covering, you know, from the signing of, of executive order number 10 in 1966 up to around 1990, because the 90s are sort of, as we all know, when the city sort of cleaned itself up. So focusing on that 25 year stretch and envisioning it initially as, you know, sort of a conventional nonfiction, you know, regular size, you know, and maybe a, a photo section in the middle, but that kind of a book. My agent, uh, Daniel Greenberg said, well, that's, you know, that's a good idea, but you have, if you're going to sell this to a publisher, you got to have a more recognizable hook. You got to have some sort of thing for the casual browsing viewer to sink their, their teeth into because nobody, no, nobody's heard of executive order number 10, but you know, is there a movie mm. <laughs> that you can hook this to and tell the story, you know, sort of on parallel tracks, you know, and it had always been my intention to, to do kind of dual history, but the idea of making it that explicit was a new one. And I said, well, one movie for 25 years is a little, you know, kind of minimizes what we can do. And he said, okay, well, mm. uh, what are some other strategies that we could use? And we together came up with the initial idea was to still cover those 25 years, but to go with the three mayors of those 25 years, to break it into those three sections. Uh, mm. So John Lindsay, Abe Beam, Ed Koch, and then pick one movie that sort of was the definitive movie of their era. And he said, if you've got those three movies, we can put those on the cover. We can put those on the back and, you know, and, and there you go. And so that was, you know, the, the concept. And we started, you know, to shop it around. Simultaneously, I had been in talks with Abrams, uh, Abrams Books, because my friend Matt zoller Seitz has written a bunch of books for them. And he referred me to his editor, Eric, uh, and said, I think you guys would work well together. And he, mm. Matt, to his credit, was, was right about that. But I had been thinking in terms of the kind of books Abrams makes, which are these very, you know, big, handsome, illustrated kind of coffee table books, but with very thick texts, you know, like, you know, mm. Matt, Matt is not, Matt is, is not a, a surface writer. So these are very, you know, dense studies of these directors and, and scenes and, and stuff like that. And uh, Eric and I had been working on an idea for a uh, an oral history of the indie film scene of the 1990s, which, as I mentioned before, was very important to me. It was, you know, I I was very plugged into at the time and had read all the books about and so forth and and had this idea of sort of talking to everyone who was involved in writing an oral history that would be then, you know, a big, splashy, illustrated volume. And we had started working on that and we had lined up some pretty big names for interviews uh, and was were kind of chugging right along. But this is the fall of 2017. And then uh, the Harvey Weinstein stories started to come out. And immediately we, we started not getting confirmations of interviews that we were lining up no. uh the asks were coming back because understandably nobody at that moment especially those who were involved with miramax which dominated that scene wanted to talk about that right then mm. and it also immediately became clear to us that maybe you know the kind of celebratory volume that this was we had initially envisioned this to be was that would be wildly inappropriate considering what we what we now know uh so we we shelved that book you know it was it was just in proposal stage but we were just like this is not the book we're going to do right now so let's figure out something else to work on and this was around the time that you know that my agent and I had had come upon this idea and again initially I hadn't envisioned it as an Abrams type of book but then I started thinking of it as maybe it would be that mm. you know a, a, that in terms of telling this story you're talking about the way that these movies capture the image of the city and that that might be something you would want illustrated more than I had originally had in mind and so I just sort of ran it by by Eric I said I don't know if this is an Abrams book or not but blah 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 he said send me over your proposal and I sent over the proposal and he said, let me take it to my board. And so he took it to his board and he came back to me and he said, OK, so I have uh, this is a two part. <laughs> I have two, good news two... and bad news. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Which do you want to hear first? And I said, well, the good news, of course. He said, the good news is they, they're interested in the book. They'd like you to write the book. I said, great. He said, but <laughs> they would like it to cover 100 years 
10 chapters, each chapter covering a decade and focusing on one film the way that we had, you know, instead of these mayoral uh, administration structure, let's let's do it like this. And my immediate answer was yes, of course, because when you're selling a book, it's like whatever, whatever version of this you want, all right, you know, especially having lived with it for that long. But, you know, I had I did not really think about what that was going to mean in terms of how much longer it would take to write and research something that was now covering three, three times as much history mm-hmm. as I had initially had in mind. But they, you know, they know how to sell a book. And uh, and that was the idea that they, you know, that was the, the idea that they could market. And I said, OK. And so we, we made a deal and I signed the contract and I wrote that book. And that's the book that you read. <laughs> and it looks amazing it is absolutely brilliant in terms of the the you know i think there's sometimes there's these dismissive sort of coffee table book sort of but i think abram's purveyors of absolute quality editions yeah. they, they look yeah. wonderful yeah their their graphics team their design team is just top notch and are really tuned in with what you're trying to to put across as an author and uh you know uh laying it out in a way that 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 complements rather than compromises the text which i think is really important and i I like the idea i mean as interesting as as your initial proposal was i think the you apply that sort of methodology of the parallel history so well to other things as well so for instance one bit that i really loved was the king kong story of of them building the 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 different skyscrapers at the the say and they're sort of like deciding "Hmm, which which of the skyscrapers should should the should the 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 monster climb um right. I just thought that, was, that was a really interesting it just never occurred to me of course this you know it wasn't like these these buildings were were there for for, for decades and decades before king kong they were brand new this is a yes it reminds me of dracula sort of why does dracula go to london well london is modernity it's the center of modernity at that point and dracula is this old thing and so why does king right. kong have to go to new york well it's the same idea it's you know take something very very old to something very very new you know yeah, I thought that, that those those sections were just super. Really, really made me look at the films in a way that was that was totally different, but also made me want to come back to the city and uh, <laughs> look at those places again. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that honestly ended up being the trickiest part of that expanded scope was just, you know, that I I was suddenly coming up against limited amounts of space. Mm. And in the research, I was coming across so many fascinating stories, you know, for example, to, to, to follow the example that you're using, you know, the the. The story of the skyscraper race in New York City, which I had, ne- I too had never been aware of until I started researching that period and finding, you know, in every chapter I tried to find uh, a main character, you know, a, a single person who's introduced on page one of the chapter who we follow all the way through and see the city mm. and the movie through their eyes. Uh, and that was a direct suggestion, bit of advice, incredible bit of guidance from my editor, Eric, who I wrote the first three chapters and knew the book wasn't working. Mm, um, right. I just knew it was all over the place and it wasn't, you know, cohering in the way that I needed it to and the way I felt that it should in, in my mind. And I sent him those three chapters. I said, Eric, normally I would never send it to you this rough, but I need help here. And that was right. the, the one thing he came back to me with. He said, you don't have a main character in each chapter and you need one. You, we have to have someone to, if we're going to go on this long of a journey, we have to have someone to follow for at least short periods. So every chapter had to have that. Uh, and sometimes it's a filmmaker, sometimes it's an actor, sometimes it's a politician. And each chapter had to have at least one sort of New York story of that era that lined up with the movie. And so mm. then once, so for each chapter, I had to go find that story. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, I didn't know it. But in the case of the King Kong chapter, yeah, that entire story of the skyscraper race in New York City in the early 1930s, which is like an insane thing to have happening at the beginning of the Depression. Like these are, you know, were were buildings that were devised and planned, you know, before the stock market crashed. And yet these guys were going to see it through, even though by the time these buildings went up, there weren't people there, you know, there were not businesses to fill them. But that story is told in a terrific book called Hire, which I read, you know, covered a devoured and then had to like boil that incredible book length story into a few pages of a chapter of another book. And so that ultimately ended up being one of the real challenges of writing the book was sitting down at the beginning with the sort of total word count that Eric 
had given me, breaking up how many, you know, what my word count would need to be for each chapter and for the sort of side essays and stuff like that, researching, 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 and then sitting down to write each chapter and like watching that word count slowly, you know, going into the rear view because I just, I had, I had found out so much that I wanted to tell. There were so, there were so many stories to share. And then you do the pass where you go, right, I'm getting rid of all my adjectives. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Con contractions all count as one word, right? So yes. I can, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. All quotes are irrelevant at this point. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Was there ever like a period in the one of the, the sort of chapters where you where you I mean, I didn't feel it when I was reading it, but that you sort of struggled to find a story that, you know, would connect and overlap well with the history of the movies? I did sort of in retrospect i i mm. the trickiest we have i mean this the the trickiest chapter is the first full chapter because uh the movie for the 1920s is the jazz singer and with the jazz singer you're just opening up such a can of worms because there's it's it's there's all of this racist imagery in it and you have to decide if you want to deal with that and i briefly sort of entertained other ideas there's a wonderful movie f uh, from a couple years later called Applause, which is one of the side essays which I wrote about, uh, which is a far mm. better movie and is and is you know um, burdened with none of that imagery. But I ultimately realized that the the stories that are sort of secondary to that movie are number one that it's an immigrant story and that right. so much of the city in that era was uh, about that, and that. You know, this has been the, the 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 struggle that film historians have had to deal with for for decades now. The fact that it is, you know, the first partial synchronous sound dialogue. I mean, it's not the first movie with sound, which is what it's been reduced to. But it it, it is it was a groundbreaking technical achievement. And the more I was reading about New York in the 1920s, the more it became clear that like that that the idea of New York as a center of media and innovation uh, culture was so the story that had to be told. And the idea that I had the you know that this this talking movie, this early revolutionary talking movie, was set in New York and filmed at least part in part here. That I I had to just wrestle with the fact that I was that I was going to pick this thorny movie because it was the only one that made sense in terms of also telling a bit of history. If I were going to tell a reader one 1920s New York movie to watch, it would be applause or it would be the crowd, you know, it would not be the right. jazz singer, which by most, even beyond, you know, the blackface in it is also not a great movie. It's a very corny, hoary melodrama, yeah. but yeah, Al, jo Al Johnson's very specific, isn't it? Yes, he sure is. Um, he was a stage actor first and foremost. Uh, but it aligned so cleanly with what I wanted to do in the book that I had to be like, we're just, we're, we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to deal with it as best we can, um, you know, and and understand that we're talking about it uh, as, as an artifact and as a technical achievement and not endorsing certainly those elements uh, of it. I don't know if that was, if that was a, 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 the answer to your question or not, but it's, that's... Yeah. No, no, that's that, that absolutely. That was that's um, that's really that's really interesting because it's it is that thing of sort of you know what to to some degree you want to promote films. You know when you whenever mm -hmm. you write a book about films, you want people to watch yep. more films, and then at the same time, you know some the history is telling you well actually this film is is important and it might not necessarily be that good a film, but it is important. So yeah, no, I uh... that's sort of why. The now playing essays at the end of each chapter were so important to me. Whereas, you know, that if if I am in a situation where, you know, the, the main focal film is maybe not the absolute top tip top of that era, at least in the at the end of each chapter, I've got a couple more recommendations. I've got some, you know, it's sort of a watch list um, of some other films that that uh, that are that really genuinely are worth seeking out, you know, and in that chapter, like I said, it's applause. It's the crowd. Uh, Harold Lloyd's Speedy and Buster Keaton's The Cameraman, all of which are great, great movies. So I love as well that the, uh, from that very first chapter, the, there's the idea of the methodology of filming in New York is sort of disguising the camera and trying to get as much genuine interaction into the into the film as, as possible. And that same methodology is being used with Midnight Cowboy in the in the late 60s. 
and they're still, you know, it's the same idea. Let's just put it yeah. in a box and, and you guys just act and we'll have a long lens and, you know, we'll we'll try to get it. Yeah, it was one of the recurring themes of the entire, like, all the way up until, you know, like, I mean, Larry Clark was doing that on kids in the 90s. Like, everyone... The, because when part of what you are when you're choosing to shoot on location in New York, it's not just about like being in Times Square and seeing you know the 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 the, the New York Times news zipper or whatever. It's about the the way that it's about the the, the combination of people and uh, and vehicles and just like the 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 buzz of a New York City street. And so if you can, you don't want to have to stage that. You want to grab it as as naturally as you can. But yeah, all the way through the book, it's like I kept coming across vignettes or, you know, little anecdotes where, you know, this and the quote from the cinematographer is like, well, we decided to hide the camera in a bread truck. And, da, 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 you know, and it's like that's just it's it's a it's a constant. And I found that actually very charming that there have been huge advances in technology, obviously, for 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 filmmaking over the past hundred years. But they all just kept going back to just hiding the camera in a box somewhere on the street. It's yeah. always a bread truck. Yep. Get, get some other kind of truck, guys. <laughs> just for yep. variety. <laughs> what about um i mean in terms of more recent years because you go up r right up to i mean i think you're the last film in the book is hidden gems is it hidden gems or am i saying Un that uncut right? gems uncut, uncut gems god hidden yeah. gems bloody hell no it's okay it's not exactly a hidden gem uncut gems right. is uh is pretty right. well known i think as well yes <laughs> um but uh have there been even more recent films that you've sort of that you're looking at and you're thinking right give it a couple of years next edition that's going in <laughs> right. I mean, I guess for the structure of the book, we'd have to do another edition in 10 years, which for the record, I'm fine with. Yeah. But the two things, the two things that I have had just had to come to terms with over, you know, the past year or so after we, we, we kind of closed the book out was that number one, I'm going to continue seeing new movies that I wish had come out in time for the book. And mm -hmm. the most recent examples of that that I have are the most like in the Heights, frankly, was supposed to have come out right around the time that I would have uh, been gathering art. Uh, so I would have loved to have, because it's such a, you know, like I wrote the book while I was living in Washington Heights. And mm. that movie so beautifully captures the look and feel of that neighborhood. Just yesterday, I went to a New York Film Festival screening of, uh, of Mike Mills's Come On, Come On, a huge chunk of that is in New York. Gorgeous black and white cinematography. It's some some images I would have loved to have to have put into the book. So I've mm. come to terms with number one, great New York movies are going to keep coming out that I'm going to wish were in there. And number two, it was a huge, like I watched over 300 movies for the book, like mm. over the course of three years. Uh, I, I watched a lot of stuff and I still didn't watch everything. I still, there are still a few that I just never made my way to. And for the rest of my life, I am also going to continue to see movies that came out in the 70s and 80s that I had missed, that I wasn't aware were New York movies that I'm going to kick myself for not putting in the book. And the most recent example of that for me was a couple of months ago, I watched The Gambler for the first time with James Caan, which is a, a very 70s New York thing that I just, for whatever reason, had no idea had been shot in New York, missed it entirely. Uh, that's just going to be, I, I that's just going to be the rest of my life. You know, I thought it was LA for some reason, but I've come to term, I'm coming to peace with these, with this knowledge that the, the book was as comprehensive as it could be in three years. And I'll continue to see things. And you're right, you know, maybe in, maybe in, Eight or so, nine years, Eric will, you know, ring me up and say, okay, we're ready to add, to add the 2020s chapter and I will, I will be ready. I think that, I think that sounds perfectly reasonable personally. <laughs> um, what about, were there any movies that you watched and that are sort of filmed and predominantly set in New York and all the rest of it that you feel don't get the city because there are some filmmakers like you know you uh, you use shame as a as a good example which is i think is a great film and the creative team are entirely or british welsh uh, irish german you know is there, is there any is there examples of people who just don't seem to get the the city or you're sort of less than convinced by i you know i think the shame is is really an interesting example because um it was the same thing with midnight cowboy where that was a film from a British director and a Polish cinematographer, his mm. first his first uh, director of photography credit. And yeah, I think sometimes with those films, the, the outsider eye sees things that, you know, your native New York filmmaker might take for granted, um, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon. But sometimes the outsider just doesn't 
doesn't key into the city. Um, and it's a very sort of surface representation. I don't have a lot of examples, but the one that leaps to mind, because we just did a sort of a comprehensive deep dive of it on our podcast, is Death Wish. Right, Michael Winner. Yeah, a British director who, you know, who came to New York, who went to the trouble of shooting Death Wish in New York, but it doesn't really feel much like New York. And in, in New York critics at the time said, I think Vincent Canby wrote that it was a film, it was a New York film made by tourists, you know, that mm. uh, that that the urban spaces don't feel populated, uh, that the interiors feel like they could be anywhere. And then sort of as if to prove that point, Michael Winner shoots Death Wish 3, uh, which is set in New York, entirely in London, like, you know, and all of his like New York street thugs, uh, Alex Winter, who's in Death Wish 3 pointed out to us are all these like, you know, like they look like, you know, British longshoremen. They're all these guys in like, you know, <laughs> little stocking caps and, you know, uh, green jackets and whatever. They look nothing like New Yorkers. So I think that that outsider eye is tricky. It can be very, it, it can give, uh, but it can also just miss, miss things entirely, I think. Yeah, Michael Winner is, is, is something of a, of a, of a terrible <laughs> It has to be yes. said. I mean, yes, he is. God almighty. Have you ever seen yeah. Bullseye? I have not. Oh, no. It's Roger Moore and yeah. Michael Caine. And it's just, I mean, it's just awful. There's a lot. Yeah. I think the high point is a farting dog. I mean, it's that kind yeah. of movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of our guests on that episode, our friend Rat Perger, said, uh, Michael Winner's entire style can be summarized as I have dinner reservations at seven. That's, um, that, that's, which, that's I think he would agree with that. I think Michael yes. Winner would be the first person to say, "Yep, that's exactly yes. right." You know, he yeah. was a he was a very uh, you know I'm not sure what's the word gourmand. He was he, he loved yeah. his food. Yes. I remember I had I had a Twitter application. Uh, sorry, a Twitter um, interaction with him uh, a oh. few years ago where you know, it was just a silly thing that I, he's always going on about food. And um, and I just tweeted him out of the blue, you know, what are you having for breakfast, Michael? <laughs> he just went raspberries. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, there you so go. that was my, yeah, that's just one, one morning where Michael Winner, the director of Death Wish, decided to interact with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, he's that's that's an interesting point. I saw it very recently, Death Wish. I mean, very very recently, about a year or so ago. So and uh, and yeah, no, it's pretty much it's one of those movies you kind of want to have a bath afterwards. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, a, a, not a great movie by any stretch, but certainly an influential one, and certainly mm. one that offered a lot of fodder for for what I was trying to do in this book. Like I, I, I saw it for the first time in 2017 when I was just starting to research the book uh, at a theatrical screening. Uh, Film Forum was doing one of their periodic, uh, you know, New York movie series. And I saw it for the first time there. And I seriously, I don't think there was a film where I took more notes throughout the entire mm. process than mm. the many things I scrawled in, you know, in the dark all the way through Death Wish. It's a, it's a fascinating, terrible movie. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many movies that were made around that time that, you know, I mean, we remember Taxi Driver, but mm. you know, you bring up Joe as well, which is a, a Peter Boyle film that is just ferociously right wing and ferociously yep. vengeful against uh, the the sixties and any sense of liberalism or or what what would what they see as decadence essentially what right. is, is seen as decadence yeah and and you connected it I think to the hard hats which again is another thing that seems to get forgotten a little bit I mean Ken Burns was his Vietnam documentary was the first time I'd ever heard of it mm -hmm. the demonstration in New York of the of the sort of construction workers and that sort of a pro essentially a pro-war or an anti anti-war yeah yeah it was uh yeah i actually we're uh i'm a little steeped in that right now because we we have an upcoming episode of the podcast that's about about that moment about joe and the hard hat riots and so forth which which frankly now read as a really sort of chilling uh precursor to the the capital uh riots in january of this year over here but but yeah i mean that you know that was well and i think too that's also an interesting dichotomy because that was a film that was made by you know ostensibly liberal filmmakers um but th that had this key character who was this very reactionary uh who they intended as a villain and then who a, a portion of the audience did not see that way um a sort of a similar pickle to you know what scorsese and schrader found themselves with 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 travis bickle a few years later and that is you know where 
that's a conversation we're still having about cinema and about art and about depiction and endorsement and all, all of those sorts of things that if you really want to get into into the, the darkness with these characters, you're always risking lionizing them in some way. Um, I don't think either of those films do, but I can certainly see how, how a certain predisposed member of the audience might read them that way. But they even released an album of Joe yes. just ranting. Yes. Yes. 15 of his most racist rants. <laughs> yes. That part's pretty indefensible. Yes, that is... Yeah, but Joe, you know, was initially called the gap and uh, mm. and that character, you know, focusing on the generation gap between uh, two of the other characters in, in the film, uh, the middle class businessman that he befriends and uh, that man's daughter, who's the sort of hippie runaway. In the two months at, between the hard hat riots and the release of the film, they retitled it Joe. They sort of repositioned the supporting character as a lead character, and they put him front and center on the poster, you know, with a shotgun mm. in one hand and an American flag in the other. And the tagline was, uh, keep America beautiful, which has some uncomfortable echoes now. So, yeah, it's, you know, all of these things are cyclical and they're all weirdly sort of interconnected in, in ways that I wasn't expecting. Mm. And what, what are you going to go on and work on next? Have you got another project in mind or are you just recovering? I'm well. I'm promoting and recovering uh, pretty actively, and um, I have two proposals that are out now. But have uh, I'm I'm waiting. I'm in that that same place again, waiting to hear back from from pub board, uh, from from editorial people. You know, with either approvals or rejections or complete rethinkings. But I, I have two that are out. One that's sort of in. Uh, similar vein to this, although not, not quite as, as uh, labor and time intensive. And then also the possibility of a biography, which I, I won't get into the specifics of, but was an, was an idea that was floated to, to, to do a biography and is something I might've been more dismissive of had I not just read uh, Mark's, Mark Harris's uh, Mike Nichols book, which for me sort of presents the, you know, rethinks what a, a film biography can be and, and sort of, uh, the, the kind of depth that you can get into in that form, which I take as kind of an interesting challenge. So hopefully that will, one of those will go somewhere. Excellent. Excellent. Well, my final question for you, Jason, is of course, um, what book are you going to recommend? I'm just one rule I'm going to lay down. I usually don't lay down any rules, but you're not allowed to recommend Mark Harris's <laughs> Mike Nichols biography because otherwise people will, people will talk. It's just a loop. It's just a feedback loop if we do that. And and I get that. Um, actually, the book that I'm reading right now uh, that I'm really enjoying, and I'm not, uh, I just cracked into it a couple of days ago, but it's terrific, is um, it's called These Fists Break Bricks by Grady Hendrix and Chris um, Pagiali, who I worked with on a, a sort of a silly little mockumentary project a couple of years ago. But I, I picked this up when I was in Austin at Fantastic Fest and they were there doing signings and doing some screenings. Uh, and it's just, it's a wonderful sort of history of the the martial arts movie boom of the 1970s and the 1980s. It, mm. like this one, is is a bit of an art book. It's, you know, it's beautifully laid out. It's from Mondo Books. And so the, the, the design is impeccable lots of great you know uh posters and you know grimy little newspaper ads and uh still images from these films but uh, but again a really dense uh well-researched text i mean these guys are sort of mind-bogglingly knowledgeable on exploitation cinema in general but on uh, right. kung fu movies in particular and uh so so you know it, really laying down the trends what was happening in culture that that these movies were responding to what the the audiences were for them and also tying them into sort of concurrent cultural movements like you know the early days of hip-hop and break dancing and you know how that audience and this one sort of crossed over you know the, the rizza from um from wu-tang writes the introduction which kind of tells you all you need to know about the 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 uh the cachet of this volume but i'm en i'm enjoying it quite a bit and learning a lot that I didn't know about about these movies. Is it giving you a plenty to put on your watch list? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to. I mean, I always, you know, that's the danger of reading too many film books. If you, is you just end up with this like unmanageable watch list, this this teetering stack of 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 discs to conquer. But uh, but yes, I I I uh, I'm lining up at least uh, you know a couple of months of relaxation and watching some things for pleasure, and then probably you know after the new year, hopefully I'll have a, a new a new book to to start working on. Brilliant. Well, listen, Jason, thank you so much for uh, for uh, talking to me about uh, your new book, which is called 
Fun City Cinema. Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, which is the subtitle. It's out October 26th from Abrams Books. And uh, Fun City Cinema is also the title of our podcast, which is currently in its second season uh, and available wherever you get your podcasts. It's a you know nonfiction narrative storytelling podcast, really highly densely produced, where we interview archival audio and film clips and new interviews from filmmakers and film critics and historians of all stripes. And we're really proud of of that as well. I'll link to both things in the in the show notes as well, so people can get get to them uh, quickly and easily. Although, admittedly, you know, if you listen to this podcast then you go over and you listen to jason's you you, you know you're only going to be disappointed because uh the level the production values of my podcast are exemplary <laughs> you're very kind as you can see from the high-tech equipment that i have it before me um no but honestly jason it's a real a real pleasure to talk to you and it's really great to have uh have a recommended author on on the writers on film podcast I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me, seriously. So that was my conversation with Jason Bailey. I hope you enjoyed it. It was fascinating to talk to him uh, and uh, really interesting. Maybe all made me want to go back to New York, and which I fully intend to do as soon as this is financially and global pandemically possible. And until then, you could do much worse than read his new book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the films that made it and uh, movies that made it and, and, and in a way sort of viscerally get into the city in that in that way his recommended book these fists break bricks how kung fu movies swept america and changed the world by grady hendrix and chris pojani is available everywhere and uh, i shall certainly be having a look at that a big fan of kung fu movies thanks very much to elliot atkins and uh for the music and ali harwood for the artwork and uh and thanks very much for listening until the next episode take care Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.